0: Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. This is our second uh, part to the message that I began last week on the influence of older women from Titus chapter 2. And verse 3 says this Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. The influence of older women. Well, I once did a conference in um, Central America, and I was greatly impressed by this particular conference. If you've done missions work or you've traveled to other countries, then you know that whenever there's an event in a foreign country, it doesn't always go very well as far as coordination and people getting there on time and everything runs late at these these, uh, particular locations. But this conference really stood out to me because it was very organized, very timely, everything went according to plan, the fellowship was wonderful, the food was amazing, the refreshments were amazing, and... um, but those things were encouraging. But the, the biggest thing that intrigued me at this particular location was a, a, this elderly woman, probably in her 80s, who I did three sessions at that conference, and other brothers did some other, some of the other sessions. But this lady kept coming in through the back door, um, and she had a, a towel over her shoulder and cleaning her hands constantly, and she seemed very busy doing a lot of work, but she wanted to come in and catch snippets of the, the messages uh, of the conference, and then she'd exit again through the back door and um, continue doing whatever she was doing. That intrigued me, but I didn't think any much more of it until one of the breaks where I exited through the back door to go to the bathroom, and from a distance in the far corner in the backyard, I could see this lady in her 80s, elderly woman, widow, come to find out, was on her hands and knees washing dishes for the conference. And I went over to where she was at, and there was this little kitchenette, uh, out, uh, outdoor kitchenette, and there were other younger women who were helping her. But clearly, she was the one that was kind of leading the charge and coordinating all of the efforts. And so I decided to introduce myself to her, and we struck up a conversation, had a wonderful time talking briefly. And I just thanked her, and I said, thank you so much for all of your service that you're doing here. And I'll never forget what she said and what she answered. She said these words. She said, it is the least that I could do for my Savior. It's the least that I could do for my Savior. And the more I interacted with that lady at that moment, and then later on, the more it was evident that that 80-year-old woman, though very small in stature, and obviously advanced in age, and now a widow, had had a profound impact upon people in her church, and especially the younger women of her church. It wasn't even that she was after that. Just by her sheer example, she was uh influential in that particular body of believers uh, that lady left a profound impact upon my own heart and that was probably the most memorable thing that that impacted me from that particular trip uh, in fact later on during the closing uh, song i stood in the back and there she was and she came over and stood next to me and there she was with her hands fully lifted high singing praises to the lord just with all of her heart And then after the the, uh, dismissal, there were people that were coming up to her, and they knew who she was. She was a very known woman in that little church. Probably not very known outside of that little church of, I don't know, 100 people, but certainly known in her local church. She was a powerful example to other people. That is the issue with example, right? Example is profound and powerful. Someone has said that it is the most powerful rhetoric, example is. Example is the most powerful rhetoric or tool of persuasion to move someone to particular action. You lead by example. And that's how God, beloved, has really designed it in the church, hasn't he? He's designed for the church to be a place where there are examples of godliness and Christ-likeness to us. And we've been seeing this in Titus. In Titus already, in chapter 1, verse 4, if you look there, we've seen that Titus is Paul's true child in a common faith. Titus had an example, and that example was the Apostle Paul, who had lived a certain life before Titus. He was his spiritual mentor, his spiritual father, if you will. Then we saw in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, that elders are to have a particular Christ-like character and conduct because they are to set an example for the flock. And then we saw in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, that elders... Are to shut down or silence false teachers precisely because false teachers are not to um, uh, be f- uh, 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 negative examples upon the people in doctrine or in conduct. they are not to be allowed to be a negative influence upon the people and so already we 've seen in Titus that example is very much prevalent in every all the instructions that he's given, and we've seen in Titus too as well, the importance of godly older examples for it's here that the various groups in the church are exhorted to godly conduct and life-on-life relationships of, for mutual encouragement and growth in jesus christ the older are to be investing into the younger and we've seen the greatest principle that we've seen thus far here is that sound doctrine leads to sound living that is sound healthy teaching when applied, should lead to sound, healthy living. The more that we grow in the truth and the knowledge of God and the gospel and his word, the more that this should impact the way that we live when we apply the truth of the word of God to our lives. And not only that, but the more that we grow in the truth, the more that it should impact the way that we relate to one another in the church. It's about our relationship with God first and foremost. That is what salvation, by the way, is. It's a restored, reconciled relationship with our Creator by trusting in Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins. There is no other way for you to be reconciled to your Maker but by trusting in Jesus who came and absorbed the punishment for your sins on the cross that by you trusting in Jesus' sacrifice, you are reconciled to God Enter a relationship with your Creator. It's about a relationship. But then flowing from that relationship, God cares about the way that we relate to others, because now we're a part of a church, and the church is comprised of all of those who've turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, who are followers of Jesus Christ, and now we're a part of a body, a community, and in relationship to one another. And our fellowship, of course, is rooted in Jesus Christ, who is divine. And so it's, both import- it's important for us to recognize that God calls us to a relationship with Himself, but also a right relationship to other people. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, an expert in the law once asked Jesus, the Lord, or teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And do you remember what Jesus answered? He said, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, Right? Love Him supremely, love God supremely, but the second commandment is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Both a vertical relationship where you with God whereby you love Him supremely and loving other people as well in the context of the church. And so we've already seen this reality in Titus chapter 2 that we ought to be relating to one another as a family in the faith. Older men are to be of Christ-like character and conduct, and they are to fulfill their calling in the church, older men, listen to me, by investing yourself and reproducing yourself into younger men, beginning with the younger men in your home, if you have sons, right? Fleshing itself out onto the church. It's a both and, not an either or. We're going to see this even further in verses 6 through 8, where... Uh, Titus is to urge young men to be sensible. We're going to see that dynamic between older men and younger men even th- uh, again. And then we begin to see last week that older women, verse 3, are to be investing themselves into younger women as well. And I began reminding you older ladies, 40 and up, but we can't be dogmatic about that particular age, right? We begin um, encouraging you that you are an influence whether you think of it that way or not. The question is, what kind of an influence are you? Are you a positive influence or are you a negative influence with the women in your home and the women in the church, right? You're one or the other. And so last week we began to see that if older women are to have a positive Christ-like influence upon younger women, they must give heed to three encouragements. Three encouragements that you must appropriate in your life that you might glorify God by investing yourself into younger women. First of all, we saw that if you as an older woman want to have a Christ-like impact in the lives of younger women, you must remember your identity. In chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Older women. And we talked about the fact that older, obviously, first and foremost, it means age, older in age. But just because you're older in age doesn't always mean that you're mature, right? We have a lot of immature people who might be very advanced in age. But here, older, in the sense, also implies that with the age, there comes some maturity with life experience. You've lived life as an older woman, you've had some victories and joys, you've experienced some hurts and some failures you've experienced suffering and some trials and through those trials you've learned some lessons in life and so it implies here yes age as far as biological age but also that there is some maturity with that life experience older women but even more importantly we saw the fact that she is also a woman who has experienced the grace of god in her own life right because in chapter 2 verse 11 On the heels of the instructions given to the various groups in Titus chapter 2, it says that the basis of these instructions, chapter 2, verse 11, is the grace of God that has appeared. And we know that the embodiment of the grace of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace has brought salvation to all men. So these older women who are exhorted in chapter 2, verse 3, are women who have experienced the saving grace of God in their own lives. And so I don't want to assume that every single older woman sitting in here today is saved. This is where it begins, ladies. This is where it begins for all of us. Are you saved? Have you given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you recognized the fact that you are under condemnation before a holy God? And that there is one who has absorbed the wrath of God, Jesus Christ, on the cross for your sins? It is only by trusting in him, turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you can be saved. I don't want to assume older ladies sitting in here today that you have given your life to Christ. Because listen, if you haven't, then how do you? How can you train younger women in something that you haven't experienced yourself? The greatest way that you can influence anyone, especially younger women in the church, is by modeling for them a a relationship with Jesus Christ. A living, vibrant devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace filled life. So you must remember your identity as a mature, Christian woman, a follower of Jesus Christ. And then there's a character that flows from this, right? We're not talking about moralism. Right, we're talking about character in verse three that flows from the life of grace, that flows from the life of that, that comes by the Spirit of God coming and living within you and, and empowering you to live a particular way in accordance with the glory of God. And so, secondly, we've seen that if you are to have a, a profound, lasting Christ-like impact upon younger women, you must secondly watch over your character as a saved woman. You must watch over your character. Look at verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. You are to be a woman of exemplary character. This doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect, that you don't have weaknesses or struggles, or even experience seasons of spiritual dryness in your life. But it does mean that these qualities are what characterize you. These are qualities that are the general pattern of your life and the direction of your life. It's not about perfection. It's about progression in the Christian life, right? And he gives one positive characteristic here, and then the second and third are negative. We looked at the positive one last week in verse 3, that older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. They're to be reverent in their behavior. This quality has to do with your relationship with god ladies your relationship with god that's where it begins this is the woman who is devoted and dedicated to god the woman who cultivates a heart for god we looked at the portrait of a reverend woman in first peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 last week That the overarching quality of a of a reverend woman before the lord is that she is submissive she is a submissive woman If she's married, she submits to the Lord by submitting to her husband. If she is single, then this is a heart disposition, regardless of her singleness, that she tries to to cultivate in her own life. So whether you are married or single, ladies, your reverence is shown in your submissive spirit. And we define submission this way. It's an inner quality of gentleness and tranquility based upon a woman's hope in God that expresses itself in her joyful and willing choice to respectfully affirm and follow her husband's leadership within biblical parameters for God's glory and, might I say, for her present and ultimate happiness, right? Because if you function this way and you obey the Lord's commands, ladies, in this area, even if you are married to a difficult husband, listen, ultimately, you will experience ultimate happiness before the Lord, right? Right? In the fact that you are living faithfully before him. So first Peter chapter three verses one through six calls women, if they're married, to be submissive. She is also a woman who suffers well. Even in the worst case scenario, if it was an unbelieving husband, if that is you, older ladies, you are called to suffer well within biblical parameters in that particular context. She's also a woman who cultivates a heart for God. In First Peter 3, 4, it says that she's concerned with the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God, right? She cultivates a heart for the Lord. She gleans from examples. 1 Peter three five alludes to ho- the holy women of old. There have been plural, multiple women of old who have come before you and been godly examples, including Sarah before Abraham, calling him Lord and, and giving, uh, addressing him with a title of honor, even though he wasn't a perfect guy himself. And obviously all of this is because of her hope in God. The godly reverent woman functions this way because her, of her sure anchor, who is God himself, who is God himself. Don't miss this, ladies. It's about your relationship with the Lord first, and everything flows from there. And so I want to ask you, are you walking with the Lord faithfully? Are you cultivating a heart for God? And obviously we know that it's through the spiritual disciplines that we can do that, right? God has given us his word so that we can open his word and cherish and treasure his word in the Christ of the word. He speaks to us through his word. How is your time in the Word of God? And then are you responding to the Lord in, in great times of prayer? Even in times of struggle, are you pouring out your heart before the Lord in times of prayer or you're fellowshipping with your Heavenly Father who cares for you at the throne of grace that you may receive grace and mercy in time of need? How is your relationship with the Lord? See, this is where everything flows from, right? And there are many people who make excuses about this. Well, I don't have time. Well, listen everybody gets the same amount of time right it's just an issue of how we use it right we all get the same amount of time how are you using your time certainly you prioritize those things that are important for you you always have time for those things what about time in the word with the lord in relationship with him that is how you cultivate reverence for the lord ladies first and foremost Some women make the excuse, well, if things were easier, you know, there's a lot of hardships in our lives. There's a lot of trial and affliction in my life. If things just calm down for a little while, maybe, maybe I can relate better to the Lord and I can focus on being a woman who's fully devoted to God. Well, listen, ladies, all we need to do is look at the examples of women who have come before you. And so this week I spent some time reading some um a uh, part of a biography of Susanna Wesley. Some of you are familiar with Susanna Wesley. And it just became a reminder for me as I read some of this, and I'll read it to you, of the fact that oftentimes we, we think that our faithfulness is going to be dependent upon how calm life is. Free of hardship. As soon as life calms down, then I'll get my act together, and then I'll pursue the Lord in His word and prayer. Well, that never happens, does it? Listen to this. Hidden behind the door of many homes is the reality of Hardship. Secret things happen that few p- want the world to know. Yet, from some people, presently and historically, we are, give it, we are given the inside story whether they want it told or not. A devastated home isn't always apparent on first impression, is it? Susanna Wesley was married to a preacher. They had 10 children, of which they grew up to bring millions, I think more like thousands of souls to Christ. That would be John and Charles Wesley. It's a powerful story if you stop there, isn't it? With their two sons who are very known, John and Charles Wesley. But behind the door of her home, hopeless conditions were the norm. She married a man who couldn't manage money. They disagreed on everything from from money to politics. They had 19 children, all except 10 died in infancy. Sam, her husband, left her to raise the children alone for long periods of time. This was sometimes over something as simple as an argument. One of their children was crippled. Another couldn't talk until he was nearly six years old. Susanna herself was desperately sick most of her life. There was no money for food or anything. Debt plagued them. Sam was once thrown into debtor's prison because their debt was so high, which doubled their problems. Twice the homes they lived in were burned to the ground, losing everything they owned. It was assumed that their church members did it because they were so mad at what Sam preached in the pulpit. Someone slit the cow's udder so that So they couldn't, they wouldn't have milk, Killed their dog and burned their flax field. When Susanna was young, though, she promised the Lord that for every hour she spent in entertainment, she would give to him in prayer and in the word. Taking care of the house and raising so many kids made this commitment nearly impossible to fulfill. She had no time for entertainment or long hours in prayer. She worked the gardens, milked the cows, schooled the children and managed the entire house by herself. So she decided to instead give the Lord two hours a day in prayer. She struggled to find a secret place to get away with him. So she advised her children that when they saw her with her apron over her head, that meant she was in prayer and couldn't be disturbed. She was devoted to her walk with Christ, praying for her children and knowledge in the word no matter how hard life was. One of her daughters got pregnant out of wedlock and the man never married her. She was devastated but remained steadfast in prayer for her daughter. In the end, she knew that one day her hard life would be over and she alone would stand before the throne of God and give an account for how faithful she lived her life. We can be the best mom, wife, friend, person in the world and still have untold hardships like this. We need to take Susanna's example, flip our apron over our head and pray in the middle of it all. Now back to the beginning of my story. Her sons John and Charles were powerhouses for the glory of the Lord. John Wesley preached to nearly a million people during his day. At the age of 70, he delivered the gospel message of salvation to some 32,000 people without the use of a microphone. He brought revival everywhere that he traveled. His brother Charles wrote over 9,000 hymns, many of which we still sing today. Hidden behind the door of my home, I want our children to find a mom who prays diligently, no matter how busy or how hard the circumstances I want to raise up John Wesley's out of our family line. So, where's my apron? See, behind the scenes, beloved, it, is, it isn't always as polished and as cookie cut as we would like for it to be, right? It's not always going to be so comfortable so that then we get our act together and then we walk in faithfulness. Life is a struggle, isn't it? It's messy, it's surrounded by very real affliction. And so I think we need to adjust our expectations of what faithfulness actually means. Mature, faithful women learn to live well and joyfully amidst their difficulties. And in the midst of those difficulties, still faithfully in the power of the Spirit, cultivate a reverence for the Lord, right? Reverence for the Lord. So she's a woman of reverence in her behavior. Look at verse 3. Negatively, they are not malicious gossips. Older women are called to not be malicious gossips. This has to do with her relationship to other people in the church. Malicious gossips, there actually translates one word in the original. It's the word diabolos. If you know Spanish, you know that that word means devil, right? Devil. Slanderer. False accuser. Older women are not to be literally she devils. She devils. Known as vicious slanderers, evil speakers, rumor spreaders, reputation destroyers. They are not to be known for gossiping and slandering and tearing other people down. Beloved, listen, this is a terrible sin in the church. And it is a very respectable sin in the church, as Jerry Bridges has labeled it. And it should not be respectable. It destroys and causes damage And for some people who struggle with the sin of gossip or or the sinful use of their tongue, their speech, it's very visible and we could see the struggle in their lives and we can call them out on it. But for other people, it's very subtle, this particular sin. It comes in the form of of sharing prayer, having people share prayer requests with them, right? Or share your struggles and your concerns and your burdens. And next thing you know, everybody in the whole church knows what you just told them, right? We always talk about in our small groups when I lead men's groups that we want to cultivate transparency and openness and genuineness in those contexts. Okay, And so we need to make that initiative to do that as men and you ladies. But you know what destroys genuine authenticity in these small groups? When we don't know how to keep confidence and we gossip and we slander And instead of praying genuinely for somebody because we're concerned for them spiritually, we go around telling other people about those prayer requests, right? In the name of sharing prayer requests, and we spiritualize it. And might I add, some of us do this in the home. We gossip and we slander in the home. We gossip about the church. We gossip about other brothers and sisters in the the church. We gossip about the leadership. We gossip about direction. And in so doing, listen to me, especially those of us who are parents with kids in the home, we give our children a perspective of the church that is going to be very difficult for them to forget about and to overcome. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are spiritual, mature people, But we need to recognize that the deeper issue with gossip of any kind, beloved, is that what comes out of our mouths reveals our hearts, which is really who we truly are. It indicates how truly spiritually mature we are. Jesus said in Luke 6.45 that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. You want a litmus test of what's in your heart? Look at what's coming out of your mouth. Look at your speech. Consequently, if you, if you want to deal with your speech and you want to deal with what's co- what comes out of your mouth, you need to deal with what's going on in your heart first and foremost, right? How we think about people. How we think about our spouses, how we think about our kids, how we think about our coworkers, how we think about brothers and sisters in Christ in the church will drive us to bitterness, unforgiveness, or harboring all kinds of resentment, which eventually, if we are not careful, will come out in how we speak about those people to others, right? How you think about others matters. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 that he, he gave thanks to for the Philippians upon every remembrance of them. That because every time that Paul thought about the Philippians, even given their weaknesses, he had fond memories of the Philippians. And it drove him to be thankful, and it drove him to gratitude, and it drove him to prayer for them on their behalf. See, it matters how we think about others, right? That's where we nip it in the bud. In the in the heart at the heart level, how we think about our husband or wife, how we think about our children, how we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are harboring resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness, eventually that will come out, whether actively or passively, beloved. Right? We've seen it in our lives many a time. How destructive and dangerous are sins, sins of the tongue? James three pulls no punches. It describes the tongue, which is a metaphor for our speech, as a a fire. The very world of iniquity, says James, that when left unharnessed and uncontrolled, causes harm and is set on fire by hell itself, he says. That's how dangerous and destructive it is. It is a restless evil, he says, the tongue is, and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our heavenly Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the image of God. My brethren, says James, these things ought not to be this way. How could it be from the same fountain come beautiful things and ugly, filthy, putrid things? The tongue is destructive. How many of us can attest to the destructive consequences of people who have spoken uh, maliciously in the church slander in my 25 years of walking with the lord i have seen vicious division church splits brothers who are professing brothers fist fighting over things that were being said about each other damage reputations pastors being maligned leaders being maligned and undermined people on the verge of suicide due to people saying untrue hurtful things about them in the church and thankfully, they, didn't, they weren't driven to suicide. But I met a couple of people like that who they were almost driven to take their own lives because of gossip or slander in the church. Untrue things being said about them. Divorced marriages, destroyed marriages, loss of jobs of, of, of believers in secular context where they couldn't stop complaining as Christians, and they lost their jobs in that context because they couldn't stop gossiping about their bosses. And in the midst of all of this, beloved, Satan loves this. He's so happy. Because you know what? Instead of, of loving the Lord and living like his child and, our, and our, 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 our heavenly Father and his word being what drives us to live godly lives, we are speaking ill of each other and we act like we are Satan's children instead accusing one another. Satan is a liar. He's a father of lies, said Jesus in John eight forty four. 44. Satan, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, accuses us before God day and night. We are most like Satan when we speak evil and slander other people and tear other people down in the church, beginning with our brethren. We're most like Satan. And yet as Christians, beloved, we don't belong to Satan. We belong to our Heavenly Father, right? And we're called to use our words in a loving way to build others up. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 16 says that believers are to be speaking the truth in love and in so doing we are to build up one another into him who is the head even Christ Ephesians 4:16. Ephesians 4:29 says, "Let no unwholesome word, which means putrid or rotten or foul word, proceed from your mouth" But only such a word as is good for edification, which means to build up or to benefit others. According to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Blessing, favor to those who hear. We need to be careful with our speech, beloved. Listen, ask yourself these four questions, okay? Do you speak to or about others in a condemnatory way? When you speak to other people, whether it's your spouse or your kids or brethren in the church, do you speak in a condemnatory fashion? You're quick to draw conclusions about that person and you automatically indict them of wrong rather than asking them questions before condemning them? Is that how you speak to people and about others? Secondly, are you condescending in your speech? Not only condemnatory, but are you condescending? Am I speaking down to that person? Am I speaking to them or about that person to somebody else as if they were an animal or as if they were a human being made in the image of God? Are you speaking to them or about them in a critical fashion? In a critical fashion. Holding them to a higher standard that is unbiblical and that not even you are willing to live by but you're very critical about them. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's a brother or sister in the Lord. Maybe it's somebody in the secular environment, an unbeliever. Do you speak to them or about them in a critical fashion? Fourthly, are you constructive with your speech? Are you constructive? Are you seeking to help or to harm? Are you seeking to tear them down or to build them up? See, we need to be thinking about this. Is my speech condemnatory, condescending, critical, constructive? This can happen in the home, in the church, in the workplace. And these, I think, guide our conversation. And we all need work in this area. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Older women are particularly susceptible to gossip. And this is why I think it appears here in this verse. Because generally speaking, think about it. When the kids are get older and they leave the home, if... Older women don't use their time fruitfully. They have more time um, in their hands to devote their time to gossip or to slander. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul expresses his concern to Timothy regarding women in the church who he says in 1 Timothy 5.13 are women who learn to be idle. Lazy or wasting their time, learn to be idle, going around from house to house, he says, or in our context, we might say from cell phone to cell phone, or social media device to social media device, or social media mechanism to social media mechanism. They learn to be idle, going around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Paul says, tell them to knock it off. Instead, tell them to be devoted to their marriage and their children and their home. Why? 1 Timothy 5.14, so that they give the enemy no occasion for reproach. That is the issue, right? The name of Christ is at stake. The name of Christ is shamed when we speak ill of other people that way. And it is not reflective of a heart of love for our brethren or for other people. So the godly older woman is not known as a malicious gossip. In relation to God, she's reverent. In relation to others, she's not a malicious gossip. And now notice in relation to self. Negatively in verse 3, they are not enslaved to much wine. This is really a call to self-control. Already we've seen that the elder in chapter 1 verse 7 must be a man who is not addicted to wine, not dominated by wine or strong drink. In chapter 2, verse 2, older men are to be temperate or clear-headed. Why? So that they might keep the right priorities and not be driven to excess by anything. And then here, women are told not to be under the influence of wine because if they are, it would take control of their minds and would lead to reckless, uncontrolled behavior. Drunkenness is forbidden for all believers, right? Right? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation or debauchery or excess. But, you know this verse, right? Be continually, is the idea, filled with the Spirit. Manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Being dominated by the Spirit of God, by means of His Word. Showing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Right? I think this also has a broader secondary application here to anything that might enslave or control us right and control older women but any of us we are called to be free of excess free of enslavement to anything all believers are to take special care to not allow anything be it wine or alcohol in this context recreation love of money materialism hobbies possessions anything that is good we corrupt as human beings right We can use it in a way that takes control of us, that guides our priorities and takes our focus away from those things that God has called us. We are not to allow excess of any type, and especially you older ladies. If you want to be a woman who is an example to younger women, be a woman who practices self-control, self-control. Listen, young women, can I speak to you for a couple of minutes? These are the kinds of women that you want to surround yourself with. Latch on to women who in relation to God are reverent. They're committed to the Lord above anything. Who with relation to others are careful with their words. They use their speech to edify and build up and benefit others, not tear others down with their speech. And women who are self-controlled, who know how to say no to their impulses and don't act like little girls, right? Right? Listen, be careful, especially for those who are younger of us. We need to be careful not to be so quick to draw conclusions of what constitutes godliness, right? We need to be very careful with that. I've met many younger women who want to latch on to to women who have a lot of opinions. They have a lot of convictions and a lot of opinions about a lot of things. They have a lot to say about every topic and every issue. Is it wrong for a woman to have convictions or opinions? Absolutely not. It's the way that a woman can express that, right? Like for any of us. But women want to latch onto. I want a woman who speaks a lot, who's highly opinionated, and that equals godliness. Not always. Not always. I want to latch on to a woman who's very knowledgeable. She knows a lot of information. Maybe she's got a lot of Bible knowledge. This also isn't wrong. That's where it begins, right? Bible knowledge. It's okay to have be a woman of knowledge, but then ask yourself, is that where it ends? Or is she a woman of wisdom? A woman who knows how to apply what she knows, knowledge, in a skillful way, to life, in a way that honors God and gives him glory. Is she a woman of wisdom? knowledge puffs up but love builds up right is she a woman of love is she a woman of sacrifice is she a woman who serves other people and her knowledge of the lord drives her to that type of lifestyle i want to latch on to a woman of of compelling personality she needs to be winsome i've asked younger men and older women over the many years that i walk with the lord hey, can I hook you up with somebody who can invest into you? Who are, what are you looking for? And sometimes I don't even ask the question, they just tell me. You know what a lot of it comes back to? Well, I really want somebody who has a good outgoing personality. I'm like, really? Is that it? Come on. And you younger women, sometimes you want to lock arms with a woman who's dynamic in her personality, who's, who's popular, who's vivacious, who's free-spirited. That doesn't equal Godliness. It doesn't. Or maybe you look at women from on the outside and you think, wow, I would really love to dress fashionably like that woman. I love the way she, she dresses like the president's wife. I love the way she does her hair. I love the way she does her makeup. If only I could do my makeup like that, I would be godly. You laugh. You laugh. But I met a couple of women who expressed things like that. And some of us are not honest enough to say that that's often how we think. We judge people by their cover. Be careful with that. Be careful. These things, some of these things, are definitely not marks of genuine godliness. And others of these things may be good qualities and may be indicative of genuine Christ-likeness. Things that maybe you can glean from other women. But listen to me. Ask yourself this question. Is this woman a woman who walks with Her God. Is this a woman who knows God and she's humble and broken before the Lord over her sin. And she recognizes the forgiveness that she has in Jesus. And she walks humbly and broken with her God. Is she a gracious woman like that? Isaiah 66 verse 2. The Lord says to this one, I will look to him who is humble. And contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. God looks with favor and blessing upon those people who are broken over their sin, and who tremble at his word, and who are broken over their sin, and they're relying upon his grace, right? Is that the kind of woman she is? She could be single or married and have that kind of heart, by the way. And you can learn from older, single, godly women or older married women like that. Is she a submissive woman, single or married? If she's married, does she submit to her husband? She may have her struggles. She may have convictions and opinions that she expresses to him. But at the end of the day, she lines herself under her husband as a reflection of her worship before the Lord. Is she a submissive woman? Is she a humble helper of her husband? Is she a loyal companion and partner of her husband if she's married? Is she a faithful mother if she has kids? loves and cherishes her kids and points them to Christ. Is she that kind of mother? Is she faithful in the church, single or married? Has a servant's heart? A a loving, kind disposition toward others? Is that the kind of woman that she is? My wife and I knew a woman like that. We've known many women like that, but the lady that we affectionately refer to to this day as Grandma McLean stands out a number of years ago. Grandma McLean was the kind of woman that she loved to work behind the scenes doing kind things for people, constantly. Writing sweet notes of encouragement or giving gifts. She was a woman of many gifts, right? Many many kind deeds. And she didn't blow a trumpet before herself every time she did it. She was always doing kind things, making cakes for people and giving them tokens of love and appreciation for her, little notes and offerings for them. She was constantly giving people's kids toys constantly. She used to spoil our firstborn rotten with toy after toy after toy. Every time she saw him, she had one of those um, uh, hot wheel cars for him. Grandma McLean got sick very quickly, and over um, just a, a few weeks, her body deteriorated with a terminal illness, and she got very sick, and she passed away very, very quickly before we were ever able to really enjoy her completely. But I remember even the last time that we saw her, we visited um, her home, and we were going to drop something off for her, and my firstborn son, Ezra, he was just a little dude at that time. He got out of the car to run to the front door, and she opened the door, and Ezra fell on his face and, and scraped his hands, and she, he was crying and bleeding in his little hands. And Grandma McLean runs out of her front door, even in her deteriorating condition, to go comfort Ezra and hug him. And what does she pull out of her pocket? Another car which made him very happy. Even in her latter days, she was a woman of kindness, and she was constantly talking about how she did it all by the grace of God, right? She was the first one that reminded me of always looking at the evidences of God's grace in the lives of other people. She was a woman of grace, a woman of reverence, a woman who sought to edify and build up other people. And it is by the grace of God, older ladies, and for all of us, that we can be people of godly character, amen? by the grace that God supplies. So you want to be a a positive influence upon younger women. Remember your identity. Watch over your character. Thirdly, and finally, take serious your responsibility in the church. Take your responsibility in the church seriously. You say, what is my responsibility in the church in case I haven't been listening and paying attention, right? It is, notice at the end of verse 4, or verse 3 rather, you are not to be a malicious gossip, nor enslaved to much wine. But look at the end of verse 3. You are to be a teacher of what is good. So that, older women, you might encourage the young women by your example and your words... To love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible younger women, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. You are to be a teacher of what is good. You're a trainer of women in the context of the local church, right? I want you to take note here. It is not Titus's primary responsibility to teach the younger women. It is not younger women teaching other younger women to uh, be godly. You can learn from your peers, younger women. You can be accountable to peers. But it is not God's design that you exhaustively um, uh, learn how to live a godly life from your peers. It is from older women, primarily. By the way, it is not even husbands who are told here to teach the younger women. Though husbands have the primary responsibility of shepherding their wives, we husbands, frankly, especially in relation to the context of the home, have many, many limitations. And I don't want my wife running the home sometimes the way that I want it to be run, right? I want her to glean from older, godly women with very practical things about how she should be faithful in the context of the home. So you older women, at the end of verse 4, are to be teachers of younger women. Now notice... Three aspects of this teaching responsibility. First, in verse 4, your teaching is to be purposeful. Purposeful. The reason for the character that you cultivate, verse 4, notice, is so that you might encourage or train the younger women. That word there, encourage, is pregnant with meaning, by the way. It appears only here in this form, but is related to a word that we've seen oftentimes already here in the book of Titus. In chapter 1, verse 8, we're told that elders are to be men who are sensible. In chapter 2, verse 2, we're told that older men are to be men who are sensible. We are told in chapter 2, verse 5, that younger women are to be sensible and pure. In chapter 2, verse 6, we're told that, uh, that Titus is to urge the young men to be sensible It is a derivative of that word sensible, this word encourage here or train. And it has the basic sense of of restoring someone to their senses. Of instructing and training the mind, the thinking patterns of younger women and their ideas and their attitudes and their motives leading to change of conduct or behavior. Gordon Fee suggests that this means older women are to teach younger women to wise up, to wise up. To learn how to take what they know and apply it skillfully to making wise choices that glorify God. You know, our feminist culture looks at these kinds of things and says, boy, sounds to me like indoctrination. You better believe it. Amen. Isn't that what the culture is doing for, to all of us and to our young women as well? What does the feminist thought say? All of these rules and all of these things that women are called to be in scripture are Judeo Christian social constructs. Societal norms over many centuries that Christians have created and and promote that women need to be liberated from. Right? So the true mature woman of our society needs to be liberated from these types of things. Not so, ladies. Not so if you are a Christian woman. And if you are an older woman, you are training the thinking of younger women. You're training them in character and you're training them to cultivate biblical convictions, beliefs that they're willing to die for in practice. In the home, as single women, as women in the church or out in the workplace, if that is what God has called you to. That is what your job is, older women. To train in character and biblical convictions. Because what does our culture say? Be about yourself, younger women, right? Pursue your dreams, your goals. Don't let anyone tell you what to do, right? Be about those things that you want to pursue. Anything else having to do with being a wife or a mother, if that is her calling, is enslavement and limiting and condescending to a woman. You need to free and liberate yourself from that. That's not what the Word of God says. And at the end of the day, I'm concerned about what God says in His Word and not what our culture dictates. Amen? That's what we need to be concerned about. And you older women as well. So your teaching is purposeful. You're training in character and helping women, younger women, cultivate biblical convictions. Your teaching is focused. Focused. Notice at the end of verse three, you are a teacher of what is good, verse four, so that they might encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Here's your curriculum. You are to encourage younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. The focus of the older godly woman's teaching is to train the younger women, listen to me, to be godly young women first and foremost in their primary context of the Christian home. This is not because... This is the only place where a woman should be faithful, or because every woman will be married and bear children, but because from the very beginning, the pattern for women, according to God's design, is that they would be married and bear children and keep home. Right? That was the case in the first century. That should be the case today. Most women would be married, bear children, and would be homemakers. Again, this is not to say that if you are a single woman or if you're a woman who works, that these don't apply to you or that you're any less important. It simply means that the norm was and is for women to be married, bear children, and keep home. And we're going to see this in the next couple of weeks, especially with relation to younger women. There are special exceptions to this. Maybe you are a widow. Maybe the Lord has called you to be single. Maybe you're waiting for the. Huh, you're younger. You're a younger uh, woman, and you're waiting for a future time when you. The Lord will bring that man to your life. Maybe you're a single older woman who th- who says, th- "I have the gift of singleness," and there is such a gift. Even so, though some see that as a curse these days, not so. First Corinthians chapter seven verse thirty-two. Paul talks about the fact that there are those who have been called to singleness as a gift, so that they might. Uh, have undistracted service to the Lord, be fully devoted to the Lord and to his work. Because those who are married are distracted by the things that come with marriage and kids and bearing children, right? But those who are single can give undistracted service to the Lord. So it's a blessing. Listen, I'm not stupid. And neither are you as a believer, right? All of these norms our culture frowns upon, right? Right? We are living in a culture where marriage and submission to a husband is viewed as primitive, as demeaning, and as condescending to women. We're living in a culture where being a mother is enslavement, and it's limiting, and it's robbing women of all that they could be. Don't sell yourself short, ladies. Don't get married. Pursue your career. Be out there being about yourself and pursuing your success. Listen, though our culture may be saying those things, beloved, God does not bow to this feminist and frankly diabolic type of mindset that is infiltrating the church as well, where women who are married with kids are leaving the home to go out in the workplace, not out of necessity not because that's needed, but because they want to pursue their own careers and they, they basically say no to their husbands and no to their children and they forget about the souls that God has entrusted to their care in the context of the home. We must not succumb to that. God has called us, Romans chapter 12, verse 12, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Ultimately, it's about the Word of God and what the Word of God says. Young women, don't be leaving your home unless it's out of necessity Exception to go out in the workplace because you want to pursue your career and success and you leave the souls uncared for in the context of your home. Can I get an amen? amen? That's not popular in our culture. I don't care what's popular in our culture. It's what the Word of God calls young women to be. And there are exceptions to that. Yes, there are. But that is to be the pattern, as we will see. So her teaching is purposeful her teaching is focused and her teaching finally is devoted look at verse 4 devoted so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands that word encourage there, a train is a present tense verb which means that they are to be continually habitually be training younger women this is not sporadic or occasional This is not older women, if you feel like it or not, if you're quote-unquote wired for it or not, or if you're not too busy to do it. Older women find all kinds of excuses to not do what God has called them to do. Whether that begins with their older, with their young women in the home, if they have daughters, or in the context of the church church. Some women, yes, are disheartened. They're always looking at their inadequacies and their weaknesses and they're paralyzed by their struggles and they lack confidence and say, say, who am I in the midst of my weaknesses to invest into anybody else? Listen, ladies, if you go by this rationale, none of us should be serving the Lord at all. Because all of us, everything that we do is by the grace of God, right? What I'm doing up here is not because I'm all that in a bag of chips, okay? It's because God is gracious, right? Right? God is gracious. He enables us to do His work for His glory. Don't be disheartened. God can use you in the life of a younger woman. Probably already has, you just haven't noticed. If you're living a godly life, some women are distracted preoccupied with the world rather than the kingdom, pulled in different directions, busy. Listen to me. You don't get a free pass because you say you are busy. You are accountable to God for sins of commission and sins of omission, not doing the things that God has called you to. In this case, uh, investing yourself into younger women. So you're accountable to the Lord and you're being disobedient to this call, too distracted by the peripheral matters of life. So women see this as optional, negotiable, right? As long as other other women are doing it in the church, uh, I'm not really needed, right? And you forget about the fact that you are a Christian first and foremost, a child of God. And as a Christian, your mission is to make disciples, and that includes investment into the younger for the glory of God, that they would become more and more like Jesus. That is your calling. You're a disciple maker, that's what this looks like. This is discipleship. That's what this is. Investing yourself into younger women. You are you are discipling younger women in an edificational kind of way. You're building up the current disciples. That is disciple making, right? Evangelism, sharing the gospel so that people come to know Christ, and then you build them up in the faith. It's it's evangelism and edification, ultimately for the glory of Christ, right? The exaltation of Christ. You're a disciple maker. No excuses, older ladies. You are to be devoted as a way of life to exerting steady, consistent influence upon younger women in the church. And this is going to look different for every single one of us. Some of you are wired very different. Some of you are more formal, leading women's Bible studies in small group settings and facilitating those kinds of things. That is wonderful. Make sure that you're also moving women into the context of your home so that you can teach them very practical ways of living out godliness in the context of the home as well. Others of you are more one-on-one right more personable you're more comfortable in that setting that's okay as well invest that way the point is not methodology but your faithfulness in investing formally or informally into the lives of younger women in the church right listen young women can i exhort you and encourage you as a brother in christ be humble and teachable be humble and teachable we can talk Until we're blue in the face about what older women ought to be pursuing. But if you are arrogant and proud, actively or passively, and you're not open to the input of other women in your life, then it isn't going to fly, right? If this passage means anything, it means that you as a younger woman should honor the older women in your life, even if that is your mother, biologically speaking, if you have a godly mother, right? Right? Or in the context of the church, you honor older women by inviting them and their input into your life. There are older women in our church who are physically challenged now in their latter years of life. But this does not mean that they don't don't have anything to impart to you. I can't tell you how many times as a young man I have visited shut-ins over the years or, or elderly in, 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 uh, in these, some of these homes and I have learned so much just sitting there for 15, 30 minutes, 60 minutes listening to some of these older godly people. Especially the women, I might add. Typically the men are a lot more quiet in those contexts. But the ladies want to open up their hearts and talk about what's going on. Boy, I have gleaned some amazing, amazing nuggets of gold of wisdom, why do we have to wait until people are, in, are are on bed rest to do that? Right? We're a family. Let's be pursuing each other. And we who are younger need to do that with the older. Husbands, listen to me. You need to encourage this in your wife's life. You need to free up your wife so that she has an opportunity to consistently, not occasionally regularly be invested into by an older woman, whether in the context of your home or over in a coffee shop or wherever. You need to facilitate this for your wives. Some of you men complain about, I wish my wife was more mature and she was thriving spiritually in the home and in the church a little bit more, but you are not willing to free up your wife from the kids so that she will have freedom to be able to do that and sit under the teaching of an older godly woman. Shame on you. Shame on you. I have spoken to some of you. Free up your wife. Take care of the kids. Change some diapers for crying out loud. Right? Wash some dishes. Clean some kitchens. (laughs) Clean your yard for the first time in I don't know how many years. (laughs) Including me. Free up your wives to be able to do that. For older godly women to be able to nurture them spiritually. And for all of us. Titus 2 reminds me over and over again that we need to Honor the older, gray-haired amongst us. We need to do that. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 talks about how we ought to treat each group in the context of the church. Um, older men are to be treated as fathers. Older women are to be treated as mothers. How do you treat your father? How do you treat your mother? Hopefully with honor and respect. If you don't treat your biological mother with on, or father with honor and respect, don't bring that into the church, right? Repent of that. And make sure that you honor them and honor the the older in the church. Honor, respect, cherishing and treasuring their counsel. Beloved, let's not succumb to a culture that does not honor gray hair, right? Someone has said, oldness is no vice and newness is no virtue. Oldness is no vice and newness is no virtue. Just because someone is older doesn't mean they don't have anything to say. And just because something or someone is younger doesn't mean that they know everything, right? Shameful culture that we live in. This is basic Christianity 101. Healthy relationships cultivated for mutual encouragement and growth in Christ, and the older are to lead the church. Listen to what John Piper shares about one of the greatest needs in the church, and one of the things that he emphasizes over and over in his church is this aspect of spiritual nurturing. Listen, quote, One of the challenges I repeatedly hold out to the people of our church, especially the older women, is that they make it one of their aims to age into a sage. I love the vision of older women full of seasoned spiritual fruit that comes only with long life and much affliction and deep meditation on the Word of God. So many younger women yearn for older women who are deeply wise to share the wisdom God has taught them over the years." End quote. This is the need that we have today, beloved. Older men and older women who have a vision to reproduce themselves, a vision for the next generation. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the clarity of your word. Lord, give us grace. Empower us by your spirit to apply these truths to our hearts and lives, Lord. Father, help us to be obedient people out of a heart of gratitude and love for the fact that you have done so much for us, Lord as an act of worship. Help us to function like a spiritual family and to, Lord, be open, Lord, to being invested into and open to investing ourselves into others, which takes sacrifice. But who are we, Lord, when you're, you sent your Son into the world to give his very life for us? Father, help us. Help us to live that way as well, self-sacrificing ourselves for, the life and for, for other people in the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.